I'd like to begin this morning with kind of a, a fable, uh, a story that's rooted in the Silicon Valley of the world. Uh, it involves a tech startup that cared for its employees on an almost unprecedented scale. They offered on-site meals and on-site massage. There was child care. There was senior care, pet care, auto care. They had flex time. They had a three-year maternity leave. They even had paternity leave, aunt and uncle leave. They had free snacks and free therapy, free plastic surgery. They offered you a company car, a company computer, a company phone, even a company-issued spouse if you wanted it. They were the best of the best. They were called AppleGooFaceBazon.com, and they, they quickly became number one on the Forbes Best Place to Work list. In fact, when they achieved number one, everybody at Forbes quit to go work there. And so it came as really quite a shock when the CFO was caught embezzling company funds because that company culture revered integrity. I mean, here was a man, a highly compensated C-level executive, one of their chiefs. The money he had embezzled, the money that he had lost, exceeded his net worth on such an exponential scale that, that people could hardly conceive of it. And all of this came to light on a weekend. And as it did, social media blew up. The whole world knew. And on Monday, the old man called him in to meet with the leadership team. People called the CEO the old man. They called him that behind his back because he was the founder, he was the owner, he was the oldest person in the organization. He was 26. Everybody knew what was coming, ruin and disgrace. And when he walks into the old man's office, office something, something begins to happen in the mind of the CFO. He's got nothing to lose, and so he goes for broke. He, he hails a Hail Mary pass, and he literally gets down on his knees, and he begs for mercy. Think of my wife. Think of my poor children. Just give me time, he begs. I'll pay back everything that I owe. The other members of the leadership team are, are amused, but they're disgusted. I mean, for one thing, the debt couldn't possibly be repaid, not in a million years. And for another, this was his fault. This was criminal behavior. Why should he add insult to injury by embarrassing himself and all of them like this? But, you know, if they were surprised by his behavior, that was nothing compared to what they experienced when they looked at the old man. Instead of calling for security, he, he just sat there as if he was really considering this unthinkable request. And then his face softened. There were tears in the old man's eyes. And then he spoke. He did not give the CFO time to pay back the debt. He canceled the debt, canceled it altogether. You don't owe a thing, he said. No prison, no disgrace. Go tell your wife and tell your family everything's going to be okay, and then come back. Come back and work for me again. And he put word out on Twitter. This was a big story. So he tweeted out a single phrase, forgiven. Hashtag grace. You understand, of course, the debt can't just disappear. Somebody has to absorb it. That someone was the old man. And you can't believe how captivated everyone was by the story of forgiveness, this unpayable debt, unprecedented. It made the rounds on CBC and the Fifth Estate. Economists did cover stories on it. Taylor Swift actually wrote a song about it. It sold a ton. 
Kevin Costner tried to buy the movie rights thinking he'd play the old man, but he was too old. They wouldn't let him do it. Strangely, that wasn't the end of the story. The CFO went back to work. One day at work, he was checking out his PayPal account on company time, and he happened to notice that a guy in his department still owed him 50 bucks. Now, this is a low-level guy, data entry, new employee, minimum wage. The CFO goes down to collect. Pay me what you owe me, he says. The low-level guy explained he didn't have it on him right now. He went on to say, you know, I'm the sole supporter for aging parents. Could I at least have until the next payday? And all of this is happening in the middle of the guy's workspace, and all the other employees are watching, and they know what's going to happen. I mean, they know. You could almost predict that the CFO is going to show grace. After all, he'd just been saved by somebody's extravagant grace. Not just that. The debt that had been paid for him was was unpayable. It was astronomical. This time around, the debt is way smaller. He had been on the receiving end of the biggest grace operation in financial history. And they knew that he would just be waiting for the opportunity to overflow with the same kind of mercy. It would be a tiny way of saying thank you for all the grace that he'd received. He could do in a small way for this man what had been done in such an enormous way for him. They all watched for the grace moment that they know is coming. But it doesn't come. His face doesn't soften. His eyes remain dry and his heart remains hard. You will rue the day you got behind with me, the CFO said. Pack up your things. You are gone. And he calls security. He has the man escorted publicly out of the building with his few personal possessions in a box. Employees who are witnessing this are stunned. How is it that somebody who had been forgiven an infinite debt could be so incredibly unforgiving about a tiny little debt? How could somebody who had received such massive amounts of mercy refuse to to show even a little bit of mercy to a fellow human being? Word eventually gets back to the old man. And by now, it's apparent the old man doesn't miss much. He calls that CFO back into his office. And this time, the meeting was short. This time, there were no surprises. You didn't get it at all, did you? The old man said. You thought my grace meant I was fuzzy-minded, that I was incompetent, that, that I was an inattentive leader, and I would let you get away with whatever you wanted. Well, you were badly mistaken. You were shown forgiveness but you would not offer it. You were granted mercy, but you couldn't bestow it. Here I showered grace on you, but you wouldn't extend it, not even a little bit. I invited you into this economy of love, but you've chosen instead the economy of vengeance. So have it your way. The man was handed over to the court system. He was tried and convicted and imprisoned. Prison till he could pay back that unpayable debt. And then the CEO tweeted out a single phrase Unforgiven. Hashtag judgment. By now, some of you might recognize that this story is actually a version of a famous story, one that one that Jesus told about forgiveness. And if you have your Bibles, let me invite you to flip in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. 
And you'll find the story there in verses 21 through 35. It's not a subtle story. But just in case anybody misses the meaning of it, Jesus spells it out at the very end. In verse 35, he says, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you, unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. I want to pause here and acknowledge that that this is one of the stories that Jesus tells that it's just, it's about the human race. It applies widely to, to every human being who walks the face of this earth. Jesus says, there is a God above who is lavishly generous and painstakingly just. But human beings, we just gone on accumulating this mountain of moral debt before him. And, and you and I, we add to it all the time. Every time we're less than honest, every time you fudge an expense account, every time you're unloving to a five-year-old or you make a cutting remark, every time you should have spoken in love but you didn't, every time you gossiped or you weren't grateful or you closed your eyes to the poor, every nursed grudge, every selfish act, every self-righteous attitude, every failure to be generous with the finances that God has blessed you with, Every time you turn a blind eye towards racism, every moment of spiritual sloth, it's all adding to this mountain of moral debt. And every human being in this is in the same boat. Everyone. I'm a pastor. I've devoted my life to teaching about spiritual growth. And it took me all of about 30 seconds to come up with an example for almost every item on that list. You know why? I've done all those things and way more than I know about and way more than that, things that in my blindness I just know, don't know about. But then, but then one day, one remarkable day, one day God took pity on me. One day at the summit of a hill called Calvary, God had compassion on me. And he canceled my debt. He forgave my sin and set me free. But then, it just, it doesn't stop there. We've been studying the Sermon on the Mount for those of us who are joining us. And if you'd like to catch up, uh, a number of the previous messages are available on our YouTube channel, and I invite you to do so. But right there in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught us to pray. And we spent last week going through the Lord's Prayer. And this week, we want to hover on one little part of that prayer in Matthew 6, in verse 12, where Jesus invites us to pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Maybe in the quiet of your own home, you want to repeat that with me. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Charles Williams once wrote that there is no word in the English language that carries a greater possibility of terror than the little word as that appears in that clause. It seems that Jesus is so serious about this part of his prayer that he adds a little postscript to the Lord's Prayer. It's like a P.S. People who study these things say if you send out an email, the single item that's most likely to be read and remembered is the P.S. 
So here you have Jesus, who, who's just given the world's most known, most prayed prayer for 2,000 years. It has been learned and memorized and spoken more than any other. And then he says, P.S. And in Matthew 6, 14 and 15, here's the postscript. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now that that may look kind of severe to us. You may find yourself thinking, God is being way too strict here. I mean, sometimes people think that God has to forgive me if I ask him. That's God's job. Jesus isn't saying here, now God could forgive you, but he's withholding his forgiveness in order to motivate you to be more forgiving. Again, Jesus is making an observation about the human condition. He's commenting on something that is just undeniable about what life looks like here in this world. There's this vast chasm between wanting to be forgiven and just wanting to stay out of trouble. See, if I want you to forgive me, it means that at some level I agree with you that I've done something really wrong. And if I haven't really done something wrong, what I'm asking for isn't really forgiveness. I mean, if I want to be forgiven, not just avoid getting in trouble, it means I recognize what it is that I've done and I want to become the kind of person who doesn't do that anymore. And imagine for a second, I say to my wife, Karina, I know I've been withdrawn. I've been cold. Uh, Actually, uh, I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. I'll probably keep on pouting, especially when I'm displeased about something going on in her home. What I'd really like, though, is if you just stop complaining about it. (laughs) That's not forgiveness. I'm not looking for a forgiver. All I'm really looking for is an enabler. If I really want to be forgiven by God... I agree with him that what I've done is wrong. If I want to become the kind of person who doesn't do that stuff anymore, then I start by acknowledging that as the starting point. And then I seize on the wonderful gift of grace. Forgiveness is always a gift of grace. Receiving forgiveness, I mean, to be clear, it, it involves a lot of work. It's more than just a simple request. Repentance, the the changing of life, the changing of habits, that too is grace. That too is a gift. If I cling tightly to this resentment that I have for other people, holding grudges, bitterness, retaliation, passive-aggressive behavior, whatever it is, I don't really want to be forgiven. I certainly don't really want to repent. I don't want to become a new creature. I don't want to live in the reality of the kingdom of God, and God will not force me to. Understand. We stressed this point last week, but but we can't say it too often. Understand it is psychologically impossible for us to know God's tender-hearted mercy towards us and remain hard-hearted towards other people. It's a critically important fact about the human condition. Sometimes this is called the unity of spiritual orientation. And all that it really means is that you can't have one posture towards God and another posture towards people. It's not just that you shouldn't. 
It's that it's actually impossible. It's impossible without self-deceit and dishonesty and hypocrisy. It's impossible because you are one person with one character. We see this in so many statements in the Bible, like this one from 1 John in chapter 4, verse 20. 1 John 4, 20 says, For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they've seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. It's not just that they shouldn't. It's that they actually can't because we're a whole being. And my true character, it pervades everything that I do. My true character isn't revealed by the values I publicly profess. It's revealed by what I say and what I do. That's the truth about us. This is the unity of spiritual orientation. Jesus came into a world that was governed by, I guess you'd call it the law of retaliation. You help me, I'll help you. You hurt me, I'll hurt you. You punch me, I'll punch you right back. That's human nature. It's what we do naturally in the flesh, in the kingdom of this earth, the kingdom of self. But now in the kingdom of God, there's another basis for relating to each other. The psalmist says, and I want you to listen to a thread that weaves itself through a series of verses here. But Starting with Psalm 103, verse 13, the psalmist says, As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. James writes in James 5, verse 11, The Lord is full of pity and compassion. 1 Peter 3, verse 8 says, Finally, Be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful and be be courteous. This is, in fact, the key word in the story that Jesus tells in Matthew 18. It comes there right towards the end in verse 27. Matthew 18, 27. The servant's master took pity on him canceled the debt, and let him go. That's the word, pity. We don't use the word much anymore. Mercy's okay. Compassion's okay. Benevolence is okay. What if instead of a benevolence fund at the church, we had a pity fund? Nobody would take it. What if instead of compassion ministries, we had pity ministries? We don't want that. Pity offends our pride. Pity makes us wince. I don't want your pity, we say. Truth is, I'm a pitiable person. My family are going to love me. It won't just be on the basis of my strength. They must have pity on me. They must see my weaknesses and my neediness alongside my strengths and my giftedness. And there must be thankfulness for one, but mercy for the other. Any of you who have read Tolkien's book, The Lord of the Rings, you know how much pity is the key to understanding the story. Early on, the hobbit Bilbo Baggins, he takes possession of the ring of power. Among other things, it allows him to become invisible, and he uses it to get past Gollum, that foul, pitiable creature, that one who used to have possession of the, of the ring. Gollum wants to kill Bilbo, but he can't see him. 
This is what Tolkien writes about Bil- Bilbo. He says he, he must stab the foul thing. He must put its eyes out, kill it. But then something happens. Tolkien says a sudden understanding, a pity mixed with horror welled up in Bilbo's heart. He has pity for that creature. He doesn't forgive him exactly. Gollum's not about to change. He won't repent. But Bilbo refuses to repay evil for evil. Well, much, much later in the story, it's Frodo now who has to deal with Gollum. And Frodo says to the wizard Gandalf, you know, it's a pity that Bilbo didn't kill him all those years ago. And Gandalf says, and here's the famous quote from the Lord of the Rings. Pity? It was pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. Be sure that he took so little hurt from the evil because he began his ownership of the ring so with pity. And in the end, when Frodo's not strong enough, it's actually through Gollum that the ring is destroyed. It is pity that saved the world. We all think that we're going to be brilliant, strong, beautiful. But in the end, we are accepted, we are loved on the basis of the pity of God. Part of learning to be God's people is learning to live under the umbrella of forgiveness. On the cross, we see it was pity that moved the master to pay our debt. On the cross, it was pity that saves the world. Maybe you wonder, where do I go? Where can I go and find a group of pitiful sinners, people who might still wrong you and hurt you, but where you can practice practice forgiveness? Well, uh, good news, you found us. We are the community of the pitiful. I mean, here in the church, we like to claim that this is a place where everybody is welcome, but the only reason we can claim that is because we also claim that here, nobody is perfect. And the reason we claim it and gather people together is because we believe that anything is possible when Jesus is unleashed in people's lives. We remember how our Heavenly Father treats each of us. And then we apply that in the way that we treat our brothers and sisters. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, you may have some debtors. (laughs) I know you do. Maybe it's your mom or dad. And today's a hard day for you, a day that's supposed to be about family. Maybe it's your husband or your wife, some terrible behavior that's been part of your history. Maybe it's a son or a daughter who broke your heart. Maybe it's somebody at work who's wounded you. Maybe it's a fellow debtor. Maybe it's even somebody who's in the room with you right now. What will you choose? Will you hold on to the grudge? Will you allow room for grace to move? I mean, just to be clear, forgiveness, it doesn't mean that you excuse or tolerate wrongdoing. It might not even mean reconciling. If somebody sins against you, and they refuse to acknowledge the truth of that, refuse to change, refuse to repent, 
you may not be able to rebuild that relationship. Full forgiveness always involves a restored relationship. But we can start. We can start forgiving even without that. What it really means is you just give up the right to hurt the other person back and you wish them well. You wish them well before God and God can help you do this. The stakes are so high that, that it's worth the effort. Philip Yancey wrote a beautiful book years ago. He called it, What's So Amazing About Grace? Listen to the story he tells. Yancey writes, I I have a friend whose marriage has gone through tumultuous times. One night, George passed his breaking point. He pounded the table. He pounded the floor. I hate you, he screamed at his wife. I can't take it anymore. I've had enough. I just won't go on. No, no, no. Several months later, George woke up in the middle of the night, heard these strange sounds coming from the room where his two-year-old son slept. He paddled his way down the hall, stood for a moment outside his son's door, and shivers ran up and down his spine. Standing outside the door, he heard in a soft voice, a two-year-old repeating word for word with precise inflection, the very argument he'd heard between his mother and father. I hate you. I can't take it anymore. No, no, no. It was in that moment that George realized that in some awful way, he had just bequeathed all his pain, all his anger, all his unforgiveness to the next generation. Forgive us our debts as, as. It happens every day. It's the story of our pitiless world. But there's another story, a a better story, a kingdom story, if you'd like. A scholar, a man by the name of Walter Wink, wrote about the two peacemakers who visited with Polish Christians after the Second World War had ended and asked them boldly, would you be willing to meet with some Christians from West Germany? They want to ask for forgiveness for what Germany did. They want to begin a new relationship. Would you meet with them? Silence. But your asking's impossible, they said. Every stone in Warsaw is soaked with Polish blood. We cannot forgive. And so the conversation finished, and they decided to close by saying the Lord's Prayer together. They got to those words. Forgive us our debts as we... And everybody stopped praying. And there was silence in the room. And they were greatly distressed. One of those Polish Christians said, I can no longer say that prayer. I can no longer call myself a Christian if I don't at least try to forgive. Humanly speaking, I can't do it. But maybe God will give us the strength. Eighteen months later, Polish Christians and German Christians met in Vienna 
and established a friendship that lasted the rest of their lives. You understand, I understand, forgiving can be so complex, so deep. It takes months, years, sometimes decades. I know and you know. But I wonder, over the past 2,000 years, how many marriages might have been changed? How many families saved? How many friendships restored? How many churches would have stayed together? How many lives saved from ruin? If when we got to the Lord's Prayer, we stopped at that line and forgive us our debts as we... And then we just stopped there. And we let the Holy Spirit work and think about that one little word, as. So that's what we're going to do now. I want us to pray the Lord's Prayer together now. And as we say those words, as we also have forgiven our debtors, I'm going to ask us to stop. Just stop on that word, debtors. As we also have forgiven our debtors. And we're going to ask God to speak to us right at that point. Where is forgiveness needed in my life? Where am I holding the grudge? Where is the debt? Let's pray the Lord's Prayer together and ask God to speak. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And God, would you forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Heavenly Father, lead us not into temptation. The temptation to do nothing. The temptation to hold on and hold tightly to a grudge that has a greater hold on us than it might on the person for whom we want vengeance. God, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the forces of evil and the assault of the evil one from a kingdom that would see evil and destruction and ruin done to the relationships of our lives because we will not let the power of forgiveness flow. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. 
And together all God's people said, Amen.